Hello, listeners. Yamina here. Welcome to the Dr. GPCR podcast. Before we dive into this episode, we have a few announcements to make. We are thrilled to announce that our ecosystem is growing and are delighted to count Domain Therapeutics, GPCR Therapeutics, Design Pharmaceuticals, and Montana Molecular as our ecosystem partners for the next year. Become an ecosystem member yourself and join our partners and your colleagues today. The ecosystem is your GPCR-focused virtual playground. Join over 600 of your peers who have already started exploring, connecting, and collaborating better. You can explore the ecosystem by signing up and getting a free site membership. For the next couple of weeks, once you sign up for the free account, you can watch the talks from the third edition of the Dr. GPCR Summit for free. When you're ready, you can also get a premium membership to unlock the ecosystem's full benefits. If you'd like to register your team or your company, or if you live in a developing country, please reach out to us by email or in the ecosystem, and we'll be happy to help you join us at an adapted premium membership fee. The list of benefits of the ecosystem is quite long. Today, we want to highlight that you can get direct access to our ecosystem partners, ask questions, and who knows, maybe find your next job directly in the ecosystem. We also have a job board. It's a GPCR-focused one where you can explore different opportunities. And if you're looking to hire, you can submit your own job description. Wondering what GPCR meeting to attend next? Well, check out our events page where we have curated the next GPCR meetings for you. In case you're organizing a meeting, fill out the event submission form and advertise your event in the ecosystem directly. Take advantage of everything that the new GPCR dedicated online playground has to offer today. Explore the possibilities by navigating the site using the direct links in the footer. The footer is your best friend. Check it out today at drgpcr.com. And now let's dive into this episode. Hello, everyone. This is Yamina from Dr. GPCR. And today I have the pleasure of having with me Dr. Scott Struthers. He is the founder and CEO of Crenetics Pharmaceuticals. Hi, Scott. Hi, Yamina. Thank you very much. Really appreciate uh, having a chance to chat. Thank you. I'm very happy to have you on. I'm excited to talk to you and to learn a little bit more about you, your career. And also, uh, we before we hit record, you were mentioning that you started working on GPCRs before they were called GPCRs. So I'm really excited to hear about your journey. Well, I think Gilman might have been calling them GPCRs at the time, but it was before anything had been purified or sequenced. And um, yeah, I was like super lucky when I was a freshman undergrad and I got a job in a chemistry lab doing peptide synthesis to try and understand structure activity relationships of some of these newly discovered peptide hormones. And nobody knew how they worked, but we hypothesized that it must be like the things that were happening with uh, Al Gilman's work, that there must be a peptide uh, receptor of some sort. Um, but nobody had sequenced them, nobody had purified them, so it was all inferential. Interesting. So let, let's start at the beginning. Um, let Tell us a little bit about how you got to where you are today, a really short bullet-pointed version of where did you start and how did you come to found Crenetics? Okay. And then I'll, uh, I'll intercept with other questions in the meantime. Well, it, it really started with that job as a freshman in a lab, and I realized what science could be and could do. And uh, also about the same time my grandmother died of cancer and I realized how important it was for scientists to 
contribute to the advancement of medicine. Um, and I didn't want to be a, a medical doctor. I, just, I never <laughs> want that. Um, but in that lab as a freshman, and I stayed there till I guess junior year when I moved to another research lab, but um, I met everybody I ever worked with up until Kernetics and some of the people I know here at Kernetics. So that's 40 some years ago. Um, but I, you know, I got to be really interested in how peptides worked and the endocrinology around them and the structural biology of what shapes of those molecules did for their biology, right? And in the coffee room of the chemistry lab I was at was a visiting professor from Israel, and we'd both be there in the middle of the night. And he was trying to take some new um, techniques for molecular modeling and adapt them to some of the emerging mini computers. And so we started modeling the structures of these peptides. And this is when uh, it was, you know, we take for granted some of these things today, but at the time it was just screens that displayed blue text on a terminal. And we would fly to San Francisco for the closest place to get a color graphics monitor so we could take some pictures of the things we were monitoring, we were modeling. Wow, we've we've come a long way since then. And do it on my iPhone. And uh, I think, have you had some of the nano people on yet? Yes, yes. Fantastic. Fantastic VR stuff, right? Yes. I love that. Yeah. Yeah, um, we've we've had Steve on, and um, I was at a conference recently. Actually, we also hosted the Dr. GPCR Summit, and we've had a senior application scientist, Daniel Griffith, come in and and give a talk. But I'm I'm a person who doesn't see in 3D, and being able to be in VR and play around with your favorite GPCR and be in the active site, it's just it takes it to the next next level. Yeah, absolutely. But you know. So in that lab, I was working on uh, somatostatin and GnRH. Now, somatostatin is a peptide that inhibits growth hormone secretion, and GnRH is a peptide hormone that stimulates the reproductive axis. And then I got very curious about the biology, so I did my PhD across the street at the Salk Institute, where they had discovered these peptides, and then I worked on... Um, uh, you know, the biology and the pituitary gland, but I also wanted to be one of the first people to purify and um, sequence those. Um, but my friend, Brian Kabilka, obviously beat us to it. Um, and then I spent a couple years trying to do degenerate PCR types of things to clone my receptors. And of course, all I did was PCR out receptors that had already been cloned. So that was a failure, but uh, I got to love GPCRs at the time. Um, took a detour into computational chemistry and uh, then eventually went back to a company called Neurocrine Biosciences, which had been founded by my PhD advisor to start working on actually making a drug against one of those peptides I've been working on called the GnRH receptor, GnRH. And uh, there I you know, got to know a lot of people. We spent a lot of time on lots of different GPCRs, but the GnRH1 ended up being a drug for women with endometriosis and fibroids uh, that later got approved and is being sold. Um, but because of the way biotechs work, and that's where I met uh, Sam Hork, who we both know, who's one of the great traditional pharmacologists, right? Theoretical pharmacologists. They Absolutely. don't make them like that anymore. No, they uh, don't. They don't. 
Now, apologies to any young trainee who may be going there. I just don't know you yet. But call me if you if you you know I'm looking for people <laughs> all the time. Um, but then because of the way biotech works, we weren't able to do that much um, drug discovery anymore there. And so I left at the very end of 2008. Didn't have a job. Didn't have any investors and. We started writing grants and, um, you know, a lot of companies were shutting down in 2009 and 2010. And so my friends would call us and I'd take my pickup truck and go get all their used junk that they were going to throw away. But it wasn't junk to us, right? So epi tubes, chemistry glassware, refrigerators, anything, sodium chloride. And we filled our garages with that. There's four of us that founded Crenetics. And um, our first grant got funded for like $200,000, $250,000 in the beginning of 2010. We opened our lab, wrote more grants, um, eventually got up to about 15 people by 2015. You know, a lot of that time we weren't taking salaries, at least the senior people. Yeah. Um, and But we needed more money, so we did a traditional venture capital round. And then some more things, got our first drug in the clinic, got some additional financing, went public. Now we're um, 190 people with a drug in phase three, two starting phase two, and a bunch of things going on in discovery. And uh, it's been it's been quite a quite a journey. What an adventure! Wow, that that's amazing. I want to take you a little bit back to your early days. You mentioned working in a chemistry lab. But as I want to know, as a teenager, maybe as a child, were you interested in science? You mentioned that you didn't want to be a medical doctor, but what were you like at that time? How come you ended up working in a chemistry lab? Um, You know, I was really curious about school. Um, I was captain of the high school chess team. I wasn't a jock. Um, But uh, I like to think chess was cool at our school. But... um, uh, but I love chemistry and I took all the chemistry I could in high school and um, I needed to get a job. So I ended up working in an analytical lab measuring the amount of lead and cake decorations and fat and hamburger and wow. stuff like that. And so I, I had some money around in high school and it gave me some basic lab skills when I got to college, which allowed me to get that job as a freshman. I love it. And that's so interesting. Not not every teenager would think to work in a lab to measure all sorts of all sorts of potential contaminants and, and nutrients in, in in foods. What did you how did you decide or how did that idea come from to work in a lab as a as a teenager? You know, I don't rem- I don't exactly remember, but uh they paid well. My mom wanted me to get a job at McDonald's, and I said, no, I wasn't doing that. (laughs) And I think, well, my father was in the administration of a university, and I think it was one of his friends that introduced me to the first job. But it it might also have been a job ad. I I can't quite remember. That was a little while ago. But it's it's so interesting. That's why I was asking, because a typical teenager would go work at McDonald's or go, go find, you know, I don't know, have a paper route or something like that. What an interesting path that you took i think i feel like it might have formed your interest or piqued your interest in working in the lab and gave you some experience as well 
Yeah, no, it was it was fun and it was different and it was never boring. And I was fortunate to have a couple bosses who believed a what well, I was 16 at the time, you know, believed they could trust me with uh, boiling acid and uh, a variety of things. But yeah, it taught me some basic skills. It was great. I think I think you'd you'd be surprised how many teenagers might like working in the lab because I think it's something that you can once you experience it that's when you realize how fun it can be and how interesting and it it, sh it allows you to build skills that you wouldn't be building some working somewhere else on the paper route or even potentially at McDonald's it's really that yeah. organizational skills that analytical part and of whenever it. i talk to students i always encourage them to do that and you know i was so fortunate in college to get a job and i had contributed i think to the labs um, so I've always tried to hire, um, you know, undergrads primarily. It's a little tougher to hire high school students these days, but, um, yeah. you know, undergrads and they go on to do great things. You know, some of my former undergrads are senior people in pharmaceutical companies or uh, finishing postdocs or, you know, it's really, it's really rewarding to see what happens with them. Agreed. Agreed. I was, I did my undergrad, well, my graduate studies at the University of Montreal and Back in the day, there was this program where you could host high school students. You could either host an entire group or host one or two students. And I remember these two teenagers, they must have been 14, between 14 and 16. And they did maxi preps, or mm -hmm. it was midi preps. And they left that day with a sample of the DNA in an Eppendorf tube. And they were the happiest. They got a phenomenal yields. They were really good. I wish they I could have <laughs> kept them for a couple of months to do my my midi preps. But I think it's it's so important to encourage juniors or young younger people to discover what science is because otherwise you don't know what it is like to work in the lab. Yeah, absolutely agree. So when did you first hear about GPCRs? Do you remember that time? Well, it I probably was reading Al Gilman's stuff, uh, some of Lefkowitz's early stuff. Um, um, you know, we were trying to figure out how these peptides work. And I actually, one of the more remarkable ones, just to give you a sense of the time. Um, so my advisor, and this is also another sign of a great advisor, but asked me to go give a talk for him because he couldn't make it. And it was work that I'd done, but still it was pretty intimidating for an undergrad to go give a talk and the guy in front of me who gave the talk right before me is a guy named martin carplus who you might have heard of he was working on structure of proteins and modeling through nmr and uh later went on to win the nobel prize he hadn't at that point right so here i'm like a 19 or 20 year old i don't remember anymore uh talking right after him and I gave a really good talk and I'm talking and implying about, you know, we think this means this for the receptor. And his question to me was, how do you know there's a receptor? What makes you think, what's the data that says there's a receptor for this? And it was a tough question because there wasn't, you know, there wasn't a protein on a band that we could talk about. There was just some behavior on cells that was consistent with a receptor. Wow. And what did you answer? I think I said something about uh, Occam's razor, which was kind of stupid, but, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was a little taken aback. I mean, because we're all limited by our assumptions. And of my course. assumption at the time 
which happened to be correct, but the assumption was that there was a receptor, and that's the only way you could explain these things. Otherwise, you had to invoke kind of magic properties of these peptides, and they weren't enzymes, and people had originally thought they were enzymes, but yeah. uh, they weren't enzymes, so what else could they be doing? Oh, I, yeah, absolutely, and it's it's interesting because sometimes I feel like when whenever we gather enough data on a topic, there is this you make this assumption based on the characteristics but until you actually prove it you clone it you you sequence it then until then there's no real scientific data and the data yeah. is king at least in 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 a lot of scientists world what is your favorite gpcr if you had to pick one you mentioned a couple but i'm really interested all right well you know, I've got three grandkids and I love them all and they each have their strengths. Um, uh, but my firstborn GPCR where I really got into it was the GnRH receptor, which is fairly unique in some ways. It has almost no C-terminal tail, a very short extracellular domain. It's super important for the whole reproductive axis. And one of the great surprises was early when they first discovered the native agonist, this gonadotropin-releasing hormone peptide, they gave it to um, people and monkeys thinking they could improve fertility. And instead what happened is it downregulated the receptor so profoundly that it shut off the reproductive axis and then could be used for the treatment of hormone-dependent prostate cancer, for example. And, uh, you know, we ended up then wanting to make a small molecule oral antagonist that would do the same thing, but allow us to more carefully titrate, use it for women to shut down excess estrogen production and control endometriosis. Um, and as part of that, we, you know, made thousands of molecules. We took four molecules into the clinic. We made hundreds and hundreds of mutations of the receptor to try and understand how the molecule was working. And this is all before the first structure was solved, right? Um, and we did some work to try and think about structure, but again, Brian beat us on uh, on that front. Um, but uh, so spent about 10 years on that one. And so that was probably my first love. But, you know, since there's a lot of other interesting ones. And one of the ones I'm most excited about uh, lately is the melanocortin-2 receptor for ACTH. So ACTH stands for adrenocorticotropic hormone. It's the center of our response to stress. It's released by the brain or the pituitary when we're stressed, and it stimulates adrenal glucocorticoid production. But from a receptor point of view, it's unique because it took forever to figure out what this receptor was. We knew it was one of the melanocortin receptors because if you knocked it out in human natural mutants, you lost adrenal function but nobody could ever express it. And then a group in England figured out that um, what you really needed was an accessory protein called melanocortin receptor accessory protein or MRAP. And then it binds one, one monomer of the receptor and two monomers of MRAP, but they're in different orientations across the membrane. So it's wild. And this pathway, the adrenal pathway, um, you know, has been described since Harvey Cushing had a patient with Cushing's disease in 1910. There's 62 or 3,000 papers in PubMed on ACTH. 
and we're the first group to ever make an antagonist about that. And it's worked in the clinic um, in some really interesting pharmacology studies. And now we're starting studies to use it for the treatment of patients with diseases in this axis. Wow. And what kind of diseases um, is it involved in? I know n- nearly nothing about the melanocortin receptors and the, the, the ACTH itself. I'm, I'm just curious. Well, the one that's simplest to understand is called Cushing's disease Yes, that Harvey Cushing's okay. discovered. But what happens is the, the, the patient makes way too much cortisol. cortisol. This is the, you know, the main stress hormone in the body. Um, and when that happens, it causes weight gain, hypertension, um, psychiatric disturbances. Imagine yourself the most stressed you've ever been in your life, way more stressed than a thesis defense or something every day of your life, you know, for a long period of time that does terrible things to people. And so, um, the culprit is a tumor that makes too much ACTH, a tumor in the pituitary, and you can't always get it out surgically. So if you don't, what do you do? Well, you want to block the action of that hormone at the adrenal. And we've shown that our molecule in healthy volunteers, if we give them a bunch of ACTH, we can block that uh, adrenal production of cortisol. Wow. I, and and there's some other diseases, but that's the simplest one. Yeah, I, I, I've heard of, of Cushing's and I, I read up a little bit about it. And it's very difficult, if I understand correctly, to diagnose because you would go to, to the doctor and you would get blood drawn and they would measure cortisol levels across period of time. But I wonder if, and this is definitely not in the context of, of, of GPCRs, but do we know if there is, what's the level of cortisol of these people? I understand the, the symptoms of being very stressed, but what is a abnormal, an abnormal amount of cortisol? Well, it can be variable. And part of the thing on cortisol is that it goes up in the morning and it goes down at night. Yep. And sometimes it's not so much that the overall level is too high. It's just that it doesn't go down at night. So patients with post-traumatic stress disorder have high cortisol at night. So they can't sleep because they're all stressed and alert. Yeah. Um, and um, so it's not just one number, but what you're trying to do is get things down into a normal range. And, you know, you say it's not about GPCRs, but it is because there are, I mean, you know, there's 800 GPCRs, yeah. but there's 130 that recognize peptide hormones. And these receptors touch every aspect of physiology. I would defy anybody in the audience to tell me a cell that is not regulated by a hormone in one way or another. And because of that, many things that result in pathophysiology can be treated by modulating GPCRs. Um, if you look at all the drugs we, we take for, um, or endocrine GPCRs, I should say. Uh, if you look at all the drugs that people take for hypertension, those came out of cardiorenal endocrinology, right? Now, the angiotensin receptor you know, is a little different. It's not right in the GPCR class. But um, anyway, it, it's just a wide open field where there's, you know, you might think GPCRs are old, but gosh, there's so many fun new things we can be doing. 
I, I agree. I think they're, they they do, as I mentioned before we hit record, I think I live in a GPCR world. I think it is a GPCR world. And anything you can think of uh, physiologically or pathophysiologically, there is always somewhere a GPCR involved in that process. Absolutely. We love, we love our GPCRs. And I always found <laughs> peptide or hormone receptors very intriguing and very interesting because as you mentioned they do control so many events in the body um i'm thinking um you know anything and and it's interesting because you mentioned cortisol is something that i've always been interested in i started listening earlier last year to a podcast by andrew huberman i don't know if you've heard about him but he is a neuroscientist and Mm -hmm. his podcast is called the huberman lab podcast Mm. and uh he's at based in at Stanford University and he talks about science and tools to actually influence your life based on scientific data and he's there that's where i first heard about this wave of you know cortisol in the morning because you need to get up and it has to go down so that you can actually go to sleep in the evening and every episode i hear from him all i can hear is gpcrs 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 because they do basically everything yeah now, the, the tricky part is finding drugs that modulate one or another. You know, it's been figuring out exactly how they do these things structurally or from a signaling or from a trafficking point of view. Yeah. But if you think about all those things we've learned in the last 30, 40 years, and you start incorporating that core science into the drug, drug discovery programs, I think it can really help you make the right drugs, the best drugs for the various diseases. Yeah, I think it's it's really connecting those those dots anywhere from structure to function to biology to pathophysiology in order to to be able to create the right drug to target the right pathway and hopefully get the best outcome for patients with the least side effects. Yeah, so for example, our drug that is for acromegaly or I should say drug candidate, it hasn't been approved. Um it's you know a small molecule oral ligand. It's an agonist at the somatostatin receptor. It's it's currently in a global phase three trial at a uh, hundred different clinical centers. So it's a it's a big study. But the original hypothesis was that some of the peptides that are used now are very desensitizing of the receptor, and therefore limiting the response. So when we made this drug, we made it as a highly biased G protein. Uh, signaling pathway um, activator. And it's about two orders of magnitude more potent down GI than it is through the Berestin pathway. Now, proving if that's important or not clinically turns out to be a very complicated question. Um, but that was the original hypothesis going in. It's so interesting that you, that you mentioned the bias. I um, I had a couple of conversations recently about where what is... How much should we be think should we be thinking about bias when it comes to drug discovery? And um, as you know, the um, the opioid receptors uh, with with the side effects where you there was at this time when I think Pfizer had these molecules and they wanted them to be biased towards G protein mm-hmm. instead of beta restin in order to avoid the side effects. And then it turned out that it's not exactly true or not exactly it doesn't work the way that we thought they would be working. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad that there is an example where there is a compound that actually is biased and seems to be, um, you know, advancing far enough in clinical trials 
but uh, let me ask you this when yeah. you started working on 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 these compounds um was the thought we need to get a biased molecule or was the thought we need to elicit a specific physiological response how did you start so, to think about it it was it was a mix of that plus the notion that we needed to make a high quality drug um one of the problems that i think we ignore is making a drug is not about getting a high affinity ligand or a highly potent ligand um that molecule was uh highly biased as one of the features we thought was important mm -hmm. but we also made sure it didn't have any drug interactions or it was orally available it didn't induce sipin enzymes it didn't have a toxicity Um, my co-founder and head of chemistry calls it the water balloon problem because you got this water balloon and you fix one thing, but a problem pops out over here. Um, but originally, before we called it paltucetine, it was CRN 808 because we'd made 807 molecules before it that were not good enough on most of those properties. And I'll tell you that almost, not all of them, but a large proportion of those molecules were sub-nanomolar in potency. So it wasn't about getting potent molecules or even biased molecules. It was about getting that at the same time as all the other dimensions of drug-like characteristics. That's amazing. And I, I wonder if that's something that everyone thinks about when they're, they're thinking about drugs and making molecules to target receptors in any type of diseases. Because typically whenever I, I listen into conversations um, or talks, there is the concept, okay, we want it to bind, obviously, because if it doesn't bind to the receptor, then there's no use for it. And then we want to induce this signaling pathway versus the other one, but no one has expressed explicitly in any scientific talk where they were talking about different molecules that might go into the clinic, the uh, the aspects that you just mentioned, the pharmacokinetics and, and the safety profiles and all of yeah, this. For us in uh, biotech, that's the biggest part of the challenge. In many ways, um, like I said, you know, it's fairly easy to get potent molecules. It's very hard to get a drug. But, you know, just think of it as an individual. Um, you know, if you have a drug that you have to take three times a day because the pharmacokinetics is no good, you're not going to remember to do it three times a day. Um, if you can't take it with your other drug that you may be on, blood pressure drug or something, well, that wipes out the utility for a whole group of patients. Yeah. Um, and certainly you need a therapeutic window. If you, if it's toxic at the therapeutic doses, then, yeah. you know, that's no good. So yeah, you got to think about it from a patient point of view. And, um, you know, like one of our programs is, um, for children, which have too much insulin and through another GPCR, we know that beta cells are inhibited from insulin secretion. So we try to agonize that receptor. But, you know, think about a little kid who needs medicine every day, right? And right now, these kids have a really tough life because too much insulin can cause very profound hypoglycemia, which can be deadly or can cause brain damage. Um, but you don't want them having to take it a bunch of time at times a day, like a baby Tylenol or something, because if they forget, it could be dangerous. And you want it to taste good so that they'll actually take it. Um, so we spent a lot of time and money because most drugs taste bad, right? Uh, By definition. 
Yeah, they, they, they're they're basic amines. They tend to bind to various olfactory. You know, a lot of them are basic amines. In this case, it was. They bind to a lot of the bitter taste receptors, which are also GPCRs. And different flavoring agents mask different taste receptors. So we tested a whole bunch, had a professional taste testing panel. I wanted cherry or bubblegum mm-hmm. flavor, right? But they did not mask the flavor as well as raspberry. So it's going to be a raspberry flavored little syrup. So you take a teaspoon in the morning. But you know, even taste can matter sometimes, right? And again, we're back to GPCRs doing almost everything. Agreed. How interesting. Let's let's go back to the beginning of of Crenetics. Um, you know, you mentioned you were out of a job. You you have three other co-founders. You were writing grants, and it took a while for you to have even be able to take salaries at a, at the highest level. Mm-hmm. Um, how, how did you, how, where did the idea come from to form a company? Well, I was very fortunate when I first got to San Diego, again, so much of my career is like from that freshman undergraduate time, but there was one biotech in the, in the, in town, uh, called Hybritech, which was developing monoclonal antibodies for, um, diagnostic purposes. And they got bought by Eli Lilly for several hundred million dollars. And up until then, San Diego was just a Navy town for the most part, right? It's where they filmed Top Gun, for example. Yeah. But all the industry was Navy and defense related. And uh, then people started realizing that biotech was a viable path. And so um, I was just exposed to starting companies from a very early age, not that I had started any, but, um, you know, Agron Pharmaceuticals was started when I was at the Agron Institute. Um, uh, I don't know. Now we have 800 companies, so I've seen a lot. I did a software startup in um, the early 90s for science education using molecular simulations and things. And so I had a, did that with a more senior founder. Um, so I'd, I'd seen some... I'd seen companies grow and I thought it was time for us to try it. And plus, you know, frankly, if you wanted to get a job in 2008, there weren't any, I don't, you know, you may, you may not have been at that point in your career, but there was no biotech jobs, 2008, 2009, 2010. So a lot of companies were started then simply because that was the only choice. It's well, it's, and I think it was a good thing at that, at at that point, because look, a couple of 10 years later, or a little bit more than that, 13 years later, you're at a stage where you actually have you have molecules advancing in the clinic and all these raspberry-flavored um, <laughs> drugs coming out to help children, which I think is just phenomenal. What about, you mentioned, you know, small molecules, um, and you've always been, you've always focused on small molecules. Today, we're gearing towards a antibody type of world. Uh, would what do you think about antibody therapeutics targeting GPCRs? And let's start with that. Um, well, it, it is kind of dif- difficult because GPCRs are poor antigens. And generally, a um, well, an expression is difficult, as you know, for most of them. Yeah. Um, but now that's being solved by a few companies, including a local friend here with a company called Abilita that's got a really cool stabilization technology. Um, but I always think of things from a patient point of view. So let's say for those little kids with hyperinsulinism, I wanted to 
make a biologic for them. Well, that means that they're going to have to go in for an infusion every month or every day, take injections. Yeah. Or they could have a little raspberry syrup in the morning with their breakfast. So the right answer for that indication is a small molecule. Now, in um, in some drugs, like for chronic kidney disease given to patients on dialysis, it's actually a little easier to just put it into the dialysis mix, and it makes sense there. So I don't think there's a reason to prefer biologics over small molecules fundamentally from a medical point of view, um, unless it solves a problem, right? You just can't get it. You know, if it's a chronic disease, you need to manage it long term, you probably want an oral drug. If it's an acute setting and there's no other way to tackle that target, an antibody's fine. If I, you know, I've I've now spent a little bit too much time in the investor world, and um there's a cynical aspect to biologics, which is they don't go off patent as soon. And so there's an implication of that for the cost of healthcare delivery that a small molecule in many ways is very cost efficient because it's like paying a mortgage. It may be expensive for, you know, some years, but then it goes generic and it's really cheap. That doesn't happen as much with biologics and it's just very expensive to manufacture. Agreed. Agreed. I love, and you see, I didn't even think about, you know, the patent and the fact that at some point when 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 you can make a generic version of the of the drug then really that is true costs remarkably go down and it's yeah, much like, easier to access like the chairman of my board is a chemist who made um lipitor back when mm -hmm. he was uh, in a lab and now you know millions and millions of people are on lipitor and it costs them pennies right it's essentially free it's like aspirin um which is which no. is essentially almost almost yeah free in that in right. that sense and insulin on the other hand has been around for a long time and it's a big controversy because it's still really expensive to be fair though it's really hard to manufacture right and and distribute it is um it is. but small molecules have an intrinsic societal benefit of going generic to me i i agree with you and also the fact that you mentioned you know being able to take a a teaspoon of the raspberry flavored medication or a pop in a pill in the morning and and going instead of having to deal with injections or going into into the clinic and having having someone you know attach you to a chair and and put in the bag and wait for you to wait for the bag to get injected in you uh, with the antibodies i always ask this and i'm pretty sure the answer is yes because <laughs> Since since you're in the business of of making drugs, but I want it, I I will ask it, and I would like you to kind of uh, tell us a little bit more about your perspective as to what are we missing to help speed up drug discovery. And the question is, do you think GPCRs are good drug targets? Well, obviously they're good drug targets, but what are we missing is yeah. uh, an interesting question, and that's evolved over the years. Um, so you know, I started. Early on, I did a lot of structural work and modeling. And even after the first GPCR structure was solved, um, it was hard to translate that into advancing drug discovery. Um, 
because almost always we could just make better ligands just by making a lot of them faster than going through all the crystallography and solid structure. But I do think with the advent of um, modern cryo-EM and the ability to more reliably and more feasibly look at receptors and ligand complexes, that that may have an impact on some targets. Other targets, you know, empirical drug discovery can still work. More tra- more difficult ones, um, I think structure can help. You know, I know a lot of people like doing screening technologies. Um, that's seldom the biggest problem, right? Like I said, it's it's not about finding something potent most of the time. It's about finding something potent that also works as a drug. Um, so that's maybe, you know, that's maybe a message to the trainees who I see a lot of people doing a lot of PhD programs to come up with some new screening program. But think about, What's the problem you're trying to solve? And is that really an important problem or not? Sometimes it is, but a lot of times it's not that important. And I think it's, and I absolutely agree with you. And I think it's also dependent on what's your, what's the receptor you're working with? What is, what's the biology behind it? And as I mentioned, I was, as I was at a conference recently and the take home message from an hour and a half of discussion was know your receptor uh, because that's the best way for you to, really nail down the receptor and find the molecule that is also uh, can be translated into a drug eventually. Well, I think people, you know, especially like in the early 2000s, we got very obsessed as an industry with industrialization of drug discovery, high throughput screening, high throughput chemistry. But there's a craft to it. And it's at the chemist who can really think about what the right molecules are but it's also the GPCR pharmacologist who knows that measuring a binding affinity for an agonist tells very little of the story. Measuring a dose response curve on a cyclic AMP assay tells very little of the story. You wanna get at intrinsic efficacy, you wanna get at allosterism, you wanna get at desensitization, you wanna get at kinetics. And when you understand each of those pieces, then you can make decisions about what's the, the right molecule or not. And it's simply as maybe simply as, um, you know, the craft of getting reliable data routinely to tell chemists, you know, it's, it doesn't help if you say it's 10 nanomolar one day and a hundred nanomolar the next, that's not very helpful. Definitely not. And I think you made a great point about one, getting consistent data that is reliable, but also looking at different aspects of the pharmacology of the of of, of the receptor and combining that information to get a fuller picture as to what is going on and how can we approach the problem and then yeah. go to the chemists. Well, and you know, when we first started Crenetics, it wasn't just to make a bunch of molecules, it was to try and do a better job at GPCR discovery. And in fact, our first NIH grant was to use some of these ideas around conformational biosensors that like Martin Loza developed, but turn them into a format where we could get at binding kinetics and intrinsic efficacy in a way that would support drug discovery. 
Now, we, we didn't actually succeed at that, but it was a good experiment. I mean, I think, you know, just another shout out. I, I think you had some of the Montana molecular people on, but. Um, not yet. Not yet. I'm, try I'm trying. I'm trying. I'm, and I'm putting, we're recording this. I'm really trying to have Anne-Marie um, on, on the podcast. But as you know, she's, she's such an amazing uh, person and she's also very reserved. So she kept pushing me towards different guests, including Sam. Uh, but I told her it's an open invitation. So Anne Marie, if you're listening to this, and I know you listen to podcast episodes, you're I'm I'm waiting I'm waiting for you to book our slot. Now, Anne Marie, if you're listening, let, let me guilt trip you into this. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully we can I can also um, send her an email and also CC you. Perhaps you can um, help with that. But she's she's amazing. I, I I've met her multiple times. Well, we've spoken on the phone and on Zoom, and she's just phenomenal. And the biosensors they work with are just amazing as well looks pretty interesting um we happen to overlap in, in the small world category we overlapped when i was at the salk institute so you know science you find friends and you overlap many yes. times in your career yes yes and it it is a small world when it comes to gpcrs in general but i think in science it's, it is a small world i i yeah it's in as i mentioned again i was at this conference and at some point i kept bumping into people who either I follow, I either read their paper or they heard the podcast and I've never met them in person, but mm -hmm. it's like, we've always known each other because we've exchanged emails or they were on the podcast and it's just a phenomenal, you know, feeling to, to meet all of these scientists. Yeah, no, I agree. It's half the reason for going to scientific meetings is just to catch up with friends. Yes. Agreed. Agreed. We, you mentioned a little bit about, you know, advice to junior scientists. Um, mm -hmm. What what other advice would you have for them, whether they're wanting to start a company, which I think is something that definitely is worth talking about, because it is perhaps easier now than it was 30 years ago. Um, what would that advice be? Well, I, I guess maybe a couple fronts. Um, one, remember that a lot of science isn't necessarily done in academic institutions. And I think a lot of trainees don't realize there's a range of job opportunities beyond a academic path. And, you know, it's there's some great academic labs and they're doing wonderful things, but there's plenty of other opportunities. So one, think about that. And um, as you do, I think it becomes, and I, this is probably true the last five years, I think it becomes less and less important to think about doing a postdoc. And um, especially with the way the economics work these days, unless your goal is to be in an academic lab, you can often learn um, the things that are more relevant to your final career in the setting of your final career, meaning like a biotech, for example. I, you made two amazing points. And yes, it is true that sometimes, or I want to say less now, but when when I was doing my PhD or when I was start, I started my master's, which was over 15 years ago, I had to count back. I didn't know that you could do, you could work outside of an academic lab. And partly because potentially the information wasn't available. I think there was more and more information out there 
there is more and more opportunities to learn about academic, non-academic careers. And there's one thing that I always try to tell people is that just go outside and talk to, to the person whose job you find interesting and ask them, what do you do? How does that look like? Uh, what are the skills that you need to take to learn in your academic position to go into industry? And I completely agree with you that you can do very high quality science in biotech and pharma. And it's, it is as rewarding as, as it comes. Yeah, I think maybe the other thing I hear a lot of is a lot of questions of, well, what will it take for me to get a job? Right. And that's the wrong question. Kind of, it goes back to my, you know, we were talking about my high school stuff. It's more about, well, what do you want? Then go find the job that fits what you want. And most scientists should have that option. Yes. And I think, I think that's the, most difficult question to answer is what do you want <laughs> is what do you want to do what are you actually identifying what you're good at uh what you're not very good at and also in that category de determining what do you want to get better at and then going out and i was i was in these shoes not so long ago and in from the what do you want question came the podcast I love doing what we're doing right now. And I've learned in the past two and a half years to actually take a compliment when people tell me, oh, you're actually really good at this. Um, I felt horrible the first couple of times, but then I realized, no, we're going strong. I think today we're recording episode 97. Of yeah, that's amazing. And, you know, the way that uh, the world works these days, you don't necessarily have to go broke to do what you want to do. Yes. And and too many graduate students or postdocs have to go broke to do what they want to do. And that's, that's tough. Yes. And that's also a conversation that I want to explore later on in a series of podcasts about postdoc, yes or no, and taking into account the fact that you may not need a, a, a postdoc to go to find, to work as a scientist in industry. Mm -hmm. And also thinking about the financial aspects of it, at least here in the U.S. I was talking to Chris Langmead this week at 6 a.m. Uh, mm -hmm. and he's in Australia and he was mentioning that, for example, in Australia, a postdoc salary is different than, is actually a quote-unquote real salary. They get paid as much as you would be. It's a job and mm -hmm. it's not the case everywhere in the world. But I think those are questions that every trainee has to stop and ask themselves. What do I want and where, how do I get there? Absolutely agree. You, um, you mentioned previously that you're always looking to hire um where can people find you or where can people find these job ads oh, uh, you know we just crenetics.com we have a a very sophisticated system for posting jobs and tracking mm -hmm. resumes i think we've got 40 or 50 open positions we're planning for next year's open positions and there'll be more than 100 next year um and I must say, I, I think there's four or five GPCR pharmacologist positions right now. I'm not sure exactly, uh, but we've had surprisingly difficult time finding people with a good GPCR experience. And I know you're out there. You just don't know we're here and I can't find you out there. So it's one of the reasons I hope they're listening to this. Uh, 
you know, and we do good, we do good science. You don't have to sacrifice science to um, make, make drugs. And when like the patients come over and you get to talk to them about what they're going through and what your efforts might mean to them, it, it kind of uh, brings home that what you're doing as a scientist is important. It is. It is. Well, hopefully anyone listening to the episode will, will go on the website and, and apply. And I want to say most of our audience are junior scientists, PhDs, postdocs who work on GPCRs. So um, hopefully we'll be able to help you fill out, uh, fill in those those positions. Yeah. And I should have looked before this call, but I'm sure there's several more junior positions open right now. People will be able to find you. Plus, you're in sunny San Diego. We are. Um, now, once the pandemic hit, we have a lot of functions that don't need to be in the lab. So we started hiring people around the country. Mm-hmm. But the labs are in San Diego. So if you're a lab scientist, yes, yeah, San Diego. If you're a somebody managing clinical trials, we're doing that all around the world. So we've got people now all around the country, even some in the UK. Um, and so it doesn't have to be San Diego, depending on your specialty. Well, if you're, if, as you mentioned, if you're looking for GPCR pharmacologists, GPCR scientists, that's San Diego. Yeah, and. Let let's let's face it. It's not a bad place to to move to, or to to live in. Well, it is from a point of view. I mean, I came here in '79 and I mm-hmm. never left. Um, but from a scientific environment too, it's amazing. There's probably seven eight hundred companies. There's UCSD, the Salk Institute, Scripps Institute, Stanford Burnham. Yeah. You could go to seminars twice a day every day of the week if you wanted to. I mean, you still get, if you're working here, you got to get your job done. So you may not have time to go do that. But uh, there's a lot of intellectual things going on and and uh, a lot of microbreweries. So there's also like a couple <laughs> postdoc associations that have rotating microbrewery visits. And um, there's a really nice community here. I love it. I was, I've, I went once to San Diego and it was, such a such an interesting story. I went there because I wanted to do a, a second postdoc in Paul Insel's lab, uh, and I kind of invited myself because he said, "Well, I'm not sure." And I said, "Look, I'm going to be here. Um, may I come and visit the lab and give a talk?" And to be honest, I don't think if I, I ever told him that I actually I went there just to give the talk, <laughs> and he ended up being my first guest on the podcast. So it was oh. a a trip well spent. When I did my graduate program before I ended up in the endocrinology lab they wanted to rotate through a bunch of labs and Paul was my first lab and he taught me a lot of the basics of GPCR pharmacology I love Paul Paul is amazing he's such a wonderful guy yeah we, yeah. we stayed in contact all right before I let you go because I know we're close to oh, the, to the okay. top of yeah. the hour um this is also something that I typically always ask top three aha moments that defined your career. Uh, top three aha moments Um, one I had dinner with my friend my grandfather's friend who was a vice president at Ford Motor and the you know he said kid you're pretty smart but there's always going to be somebody smarter than you and you can choose whether you work hard or not I thought that was pretty profound stuff um 
And then, of course, there was that it wasn't one particular moment, but uh, it was this realization that we can translate science into things that really make a difference in people's lives. And if you go back to the time when my father was born, um, there wasn't penicillin. And look where we are today, right? Yeah. Um, there was no genome. You know, I think we limit ourselves way too much about what might be possible. And I guess more recently, the aha moment um, is that, you know, I've struggled a lot to fund science. And a lot of my friends have a great difficulty funding science. Um, but by coming into the biotech community and making sure that our scientific work is relevant for society and improves health of people, there's a lot of money out there to help us do that. And so since those early days when we were starving and literally dumpster diving occasionally, um, We've now raised more than $700 million to support our science and our drug development. So, you know, a lot of what we do as scientists is solve problems. But one of the biggest problems we all have is there's not enough money to do the work we need to do. Agreed. Thank you, Scott. This was, I, th I think this, this is a perfect way to, to end this, uh, this hour. I really am happy that you were able to join me today. Thank you again. And I hope everyone who is listening reaches out uh, to Scott and to, on the Queenetics website to look, look out for those um, GPCR-related jobs. Because there's one interesting thing. Sometimes trainees tell me, well, you know, I want to continue working on GPCRs, but I don't know what companies work on GPCRs. We do. Amazing. Thank you very much. Very much <laughs> enjoyed talking to you. Thank you, Scott. Thank you for listening to this Dr. GPCR podcast episode. We'd like to thank our guest and our Dr. GPCR team, namely Attila Forrest, Ines Pinero, Monsera Avila Zozoya, and Nipuna Wirasingo. A huge thank you to our ecosystem partners for their support, Domain Therapeutics, GPCR Therapeutics, Design Pharmaceuticals, and Montana Molecular. You can connect with our partners directly in the ecosystem. You can also connect with our Dr. GPCR team directly in the ecosystem as well. Join us today. Also, please subscribe to the Dr. GPCR newsletter, find us on YouTube, and if you like our podcast, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. You can also leave us a testimonial at drgpcr.com slash testimonials. And another great way to support us is to share your favorite Dr. GPCR program with your network and colleagues. You can email us at any time with any questions or suggestions at hello at drgpcr.com. Until next time, stay safe.